I'm thrilled to have Giles Hutchins with us today on the show. Giles, welcome. It's a real honor to be here with you, Raphael. Thank you very much for inviting It's my honor, I can assure you, and I've been really, um, you know, looking forward to having this discussion and getting into the weeds with you on all things regenerative leadership. You know, I'm not going to go into your huge background and your your number of books, although you do have a, a, a book coming out very shortly, which I'm looking forward to, to reading. I've got pretty much all the others. I wanted to start by helping the listeners understand how you first connected with nature. Well, as you know, my work's pretty much about attuning with life, with nature. And um, that actually started very early on in my life for me. Um, quite young, I had a, a couple of quite profound experiences. You could, I think, looking back on them, call them uh, out-of-body experiences. Uh, one in particular, I remember, but there were a couple before, but one around the age of seven, um, I spent some time uh, in nature where I was definitely in another another place altogether um, in, in terms of my consciousness. And that stuck with me um, for some time. There was much, much more to life than meets the eye or that we think about in our heads. And I used to watch nature programs a lot with my parents, thanks to them, you know, David Attenborough and so forth. And um, often used to question that this view that sort of nature was all about sort of competition. Uh, it was, and got me to start questioning the kind of civilization that we're living in. And that then sent me down many roads exploring many other things. I really enjoyed the chat with Obama and uh, and David Attenborough, actually, where, where they had the discussion and they say that, you know, all children are inherently fascinated by nature. It's something that we have to kind of unlearn. Did you go through that kind of unloaning process and have to rediscover it? Uh, did you kind of have to conform to the normal world and business? Well, I, I actually made a decision. So uh, a couple of years after those um, videos, I mean, I went on my own sort of journey of activism and getting involved in um, activism and quite quickly finding that a lot of that was fear-based or anger-orientated, projecting onto other people, blaming other people, and didn't really ring true to me. So I quite quickly found that business was really being given as the reason why all of these things were happening, the reason why we were exploiting other human beings. Nature was apparently because of business. So I actually vowed to myself, I gave myself a promise, which I'm still in the process of uh, living up to, which was to find out about really what's behind business. What is the strategy? And how can business become in harmony with life? Why is it singularly odds with life? Because I just didn't, I didn't understand that. So I, I then committed to going into business. So I kind of went into business with my eyes open. But yes, um, 15, 20 years on, I mean, I'm now 25 years on from um, being in business. Um, but I can remember catching myself. This was then when I was um, running business transformation for KPMG um, in the UK. So I had quite a, a senior role, um, complex programs of change, working with different organizations around the world. I was understanding about business but I could find myself starting to lose my connection with nature. Um, that was something happening, especially with lots of global travel. And that actually helped remind me about when to make good on my promise. And you were doing some fairly, I mean, corporate kind of roles, weren't you? You're, you were deep in the system at uh, this time. Um, you know, you, were, you spent a good portion of time with KPMG, for example, and I know you had, you know, people reporting to you and, and, and lots of the pressures that we all feel perhaps in corporate life um, and, and, and went on to do other things. What 
allowed you to kind of cross the threshold and say, okay, I'm going to give up some of the trappings of wealth and, and um, standard business, if you like, to, to take you, your steps towards uh, writing, writing the books that you have and starting to coach and train people on this journey. It was my own unconscious, my own self, or, or you could say nature itself, was, was knocking at the door. I remember quite clearly starting to um, have these sort of slight, almost outbursts in meetings, saying things like, well, gosh, do we not realise that this project is, you know, inherently damaging life or something like that? And people would look at me and go, what? You know, what, what, what? <laughs> and, um, and, and stuff was starting to sort of blurt out of me um, as I was starting to question what I was doing. I'd learned a hell of a lot. And of course, I was being offered, it was an interesting time for me, I was being offered this new role. Um, so I was a director at the time. And as you say, I had a number of people, um, over 40 people reporting to me and, and contractors and a, a P&L. And, you know, so it was a, a significant business role with lots of complex risks. Some of the programs were uh, multi-million uh, pound programs. And um, on the one hand, much of my self-identity was coming from this being this senior person in KPMG and so forth. Um, on the other hand, it, it was, you know, felt like it was time to, to move, to change, to unfold. And they offered me this role to become, you know, a, a much more senior level to run the SAP practice, which was starting to become a next step, potentially, um, much larger practice. And I remember at the time thinking, gosh, where do I want to go with this? And deciding to make good on my promise. It was actually a David Attenborough program again, much later, <laughs> in my flat in London with a hangover on a Sunday evening and uh, watching this program. And it was around 2005 and he said, and he got told off for doing this. This was the first time he, he, he said something a bit more political. At the end of the program, he said, the reason why um, um, we are seeing challenges in nature is because of human activity. And if we don't do something about this now, then the beauty that you've just been watching on this program will be irreparably damaged. The time is now. And when he said that, it was exactly what I wanted to hear. I was almost asking for a sign. You know, what do I do? Do I carry on down this road and wait till I become CEO of a, of a company or a, a senior leader and then make change happen, which was kind of convenient because then I could stay in the system? Um, or was the time to actually make good? now and when he said that i, I was very clear I, I remember standing up in my apartment and, and just allowing myself to cry for about oh, a good couple of minutes just all the sort of i suppose suppressed stuff i'd i'd kept within about how nature and, and life was being uh, damaged i allowed out and wrote a note to myself to say i begin and in the morning I woke up and didn't need to even look at the note. Um, and that really was the beginning of quite a, quite a significant metamorphosis for me because I then moved into sustainable business, uh, became global head of sustainability for a big multinational called Atos Origin um, with 150,000 employees. And then after that, doing that for about five years, again, realizing I needed to shift again and I needed to leave corporate life altogether. So I was already then on the journey. It was that tipping point then around 2005 to actually just live my purpose, mm. which is still driving me today, which isn't easy because you have to mm -hmm. change all the time. You have to adapt. You have to evolve just as things get comfortable. <laughs> yeah. um, and this is what nature is teaching us. Just as you're starting to get into your groove, you then need to adapt. You need to continuously evolve to be in tune with life. Completely. And I feel a lot of what you're saying has resonated with me. You know, certainly the book that you did with uh, Laura Storm, Regenerative Leadership, was one of 
you know, one of the key books in, in inspiring me to, to, to make a step personally as well to try and align uh, my industry, my investment practice with uh, my principles and values. So can you help us understand a bit about this story of or journey of separation and reconnection that, that's highlighted in, in that book with Laura? Yes, and that draws upon The Illusion of Separation, a book I wrote before, which is you know, after leaving corporate life, I did a whole exploration into um, why have we come to this point where we have lost connection with nature? And that was a really interesting exploration. And what I found was um, actually for the vast portion of human history, we've had a deep sense of connection with nature. And to the question you just said around David Attenborough's podcast, uh, as children, we wake up and we come into the world with this innate sense. So it's innate within us. And what we've done, um, and it really happened, I mean, it's the, the seeds of this shift happened around the Neolithic re Revolution and the Agricultural Revolution. Um, and we started to domesticate and control nature. Uh, and yet for even that period of time, we uh, lived in relative understanding of the interconnectedness and the depth of nature. It wasn't until the scientific revolution, much later, uh, 400 years ago, that we started to see what we call the rise of rationalism. So very reductive ways of viewing life, ourselves, each other, and the world around us, and also the organization, so the organization machine. And that from that comes Taylorism, comes scientific management theory, uh, Milton Friedman's maximization of um, short-term profits, all of that feeds out of that mechanistic worldview that really came about 400 years ago. And even though today we now know, and over the last 100 years we've known, profound thinkers like um, and scientists like Einstein and Schrodinger and Bohm mm -hmm. and so forth have really explored how life is innately connected and we are participating within that internet now no scientific and biological that's how life works we're still holding on to an old world view of mechanistic materialism and so the journey of separation if you like that we talk about in the book regenerative leadership is one of drawing away from that connection with life which one could argue um if one wanted to be positive about this and see everything as a learning is helping us to get perspective on who we are so that we when we reconnect back into life we're doing that consciously rather than just being in in connection with nature by learning to fall out of connection with nature when we come back into connection we are consciously aware of the awesome potential of life and that reconnection I would argue is the journey that we're going on now that remembering because the very challenges that we've created, climate, COVID, conflict, all of these challenges which come out of human behavior are spawned from that mechanistic materialism, being completely out of touch with life. We've created all sorts of systemic challenges, which we're now having to deal with. We can't deal with them with the same level of thinking that created problems, um, that mechanistic materialism. That's just going to create further problems. And we find that sometimes in the sustainability movement, we're getting too caught up in managing carbon rather than looking at the big picture about what this is really about. And, and when we shift into reconnecting, which is what regenerative leadership and leading by nature is all about, when we allow that world view shift to happen in us as leaders and in our organization, then we start to allow ourselves to flow with life again. And that reconnection is what's going to wake us up and enable us to deal with and, and to, to thrive in these volatile times. Without that, we are going to struggle and we won't evolve. So really, this is a uh, an hour of 
humanity's reckoning. Um, are mm -hmm. we able to wake up and realise the awesomeness of life or will we um, not be able to evolve? And that's a big ask, really, because we're, we're all kind of, you know, we all grow up, we all go to, you know, if we're, we're privileged enough to go to business school, etc., we learn Henry Ford's approaches and all of these kind of things. They've all been kind of indoctrinated into us. So we're kind of a product of the environment that we have grown and been educated in. So you know, systems change, which is an area obviously that you're, you're focused on. How is that, you know, how is it feasible uh, when we're all individuals to, to create a swarm or, or a, a herd of thinking in, in the direction that you're discussing? How do we, how do we do this? Well, the answer actually, fortunately, is in the, the shift itself. First, we've got to recognise that we can't deal with these systemic challenges with that old level of thing. And the more we do so, the more we actually create more tension, more stress. And that tension and stress leads to two things, either one, breakdown, or two, that dissonance creates the capacity to make change happen. So back to my personal story, when I was creating that dissonance inside myself, I was buffering up against my own unconscious, I could have just suppressed it, carried on, taken the next job promotion, carried on in the system, but that would have come back and haunted me until I realized my fuller potential. So instead, that dissonance created an insight for me that enabled me to change. And that's the same for us now as a collective. That dissonance creates the potential for the breakdown leading to breakthrough. And also, when we look at systems change, I mean, Don Anella Meadows, the system scientist, um, clearly pointed this out many decades ago. You know, the greatest leverage point for transformation for any system is to shift the consciousness, to shift the worldview. And when we start working with that shift in consciousness, and I work specifically with leaders for this reason, because they have a catalytic effect on their, the people around them, uh, what we explore in complex systems when they shift is that we only need, um, we don't need to shift everyone. Uh, in fact, um, what you need is about 6 to 10% people, and they start shifting the other trend makers around <laughs> them, and things start shifting quite quickly. So think of the metamorphosis of the caterpillar to the butterfly. To start off with, you have these imaginal cells that are trying to struggle to allow the butterfly to emerge, but the caterpillar um, sees them as a threat and challenges them and undermines them and, and, and tries to kill them. But as they persist, a tipping point is reached, and around, say, 6 to 10%, those imaginal cells persist, then the caterpillar suddenly starts to realize that actually maybe they are part of the emerging future and then starts to help them rather than undermine them. And quite quickly, then the transformation unfolds. And so we're in this unique moment now where actually I believe people are starting to recognize that these imaginal cells, people talking about regenerative cultures, regenerative design, regenerative leadership, new ways of working, uh, more conscious ways of operating, B Corps and so forth, all of this is starting to shift and people are no longer holding back from it, but going, hang on a minute, let's start exploring that. You know, some of your work talks about sort of flowing or swimming with the stream rather than kind of working against it. That momentum kind of reminds me of the, you know, if it's only six to 10%, it sounds achievable, right? We only need six to 10% of, of leaders to to start to realize that that is the direction or that's the, you know, the wave that's coming and they, they need to start swimming out to, uh, to surf it. And, you know, we create momentum. I, I don't think you've seen, uh, I don't know if you've seen the TED talk about the, uh, or is a, a guy dancing crazily at a festival and um, he's just on his own for about five 
five minutes and then uh, like someone joins him as soon as one person joins him uh shortly after there's it turns into a, a full-on rave with like 30 40 50 people all, all piling in so i mean that's encouraging if you feel that it is achievable because i think one of the challenges that, that we experience is this kind of sense of uh screaming inside in a way where it's like not knowing how to observe a degenerative type of organization or, or company where you see practices where you think look this isn't this is this could be better um but being able to actually play a part in 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 that sounds more achievable um i mean is your work instigated i would assume you're certainly your coaching work is by already people that are interested in the logic of life or you know it's not something that's happening from a decentralized kind of you know lower echelons of the organization we're still in hierarchies how do most people start to work with you where where do they discover you and and, and are you seeing more momentum around these things yeah well, just yesterday, for instance, we had 24 leaders from a construction company here at Springwood Farm, um, ancient woodland, where I, I, do, I send to a lot of my international leadership work. And out of that group, there were, I would say, a number of those leaders. They, they were middle managers or senior to middle leaders across the organization. There would be a number of leaders in there that are on that cusp of shifting into next stage leadership and really becoming aware of living systems and of attuning to life. All we're doing is sowing seeds and that they then go on their own journey, just like I did back then, when they start going through their own shift. And it, it's inevitable. All uh, The shift will happen. Um, the, the forces that we're dealing with in life are, are far greater than we can imagine. But what happens is our ego gets in the way, or we believe because of how society is that we need to focus on getting the next promotion and paying the bills and so forth and keeping fear. And then so things buffer up in us. So all I'm doing as a coach is creating the courage in people not to allow that fear to get the better of them, but to feel courageous enough to start taking steps forward through their own threshold. And when they do, life serves them, doors open. I mean, my own life is, is a prime insight for me on that. It's proven to me what this is about. Uh, I mean, I knew it in my outer body experiences as a child, you know, the innate sense of how life works was in me, but to actually have it proven to me through my own life, for instance, how Springwood Farm came to me, um, how, you know, I meet people and, and how synchronicities happen. So those doorways open after you have started to take courage. So life needs to know that you're prepared to cross the threshold. So for instance, the leaders who were here yesterday, you would then start coaching and working um, with a small group of them, and they would then start actually going on their own path and their lives would fundamentally start changing. And people have to be prepared for that. And that's why I coach people through those journeys because it changes the, their worldview, it changes their meaning making, relationships in their lives, habits, um, hobbies, all of that may potentially change. Is it like an intervention though? I mean, I, I, I think we are now so bombarded by demands, stress, pressures, um, expectations, certainly in kind of Western lifestyle and working practices like how do you make space for that kind of realization because it could sound a bit like what are we talking about this sounds very hippie why are we talking about trees and life and things in a business context what's it got to do with it you know logic of life what's the logic of life i understand you know making machines and process and I understand what i've learned but how is life logical it looks disorganized to me so that's i think probably why i've gone through the journey i have done and why perhaps i i had to go through business um because i can quite that, that's my job is to quite quickly work with a senior leader 
So I, I coach a lot of CEOs from around different organizations around the world. Often some of them don't ever meet me. It's all online. And we can still go through very deep journeys together. I'm quite proficient now in uh, <laughs> being able to allow leaders to feel, to let their guard down. This isn't actually hippie or woo-woo. Uh, I've taken hundreds of leaders into nature. None of them have ever reported back. They may have initially thought it, <laughs> yeah. and there was an apprehension. And so my job is to quite quickly get them beyond that by feeding some of their desire for sort of fat figures but uh, and how this relates to the future of business and how things are shifting and what that means for their culture, for their value proposition. You know, I mean, I've, I've done business strategy for some of the largest corporations around the world. So I know how to speak that language. And I've worked with culture change and business transformation for two decades. So that's that's not a problem. But you then need to move beyond that. Otherwise, you're just getting caught up in that mechanistic series, you know, that, that mindset of, you know, fixing things. So you, you start out with that base so people feel comfortable. But then you quite quickly move into, okay, so what's really going on? And it then does become, so there is an initial intervention to your question, and that can be three and a half hours here in nature or a couple of hours online. So it doesn't have to be long. Um, the session here yesterday, because it was a group of over 20 people, um, was, was six hours. They had had that intervention. All of them leaving the day were profoundly different than when they arrived. But that's just the beginning. You know, you can't just go, that's it. It's then a case of working with people who are ripe for that metamorphosis and going through a journey um, that needs some psychological safety and some developmental process to help them go through that shift. And then it can take, you know, six months, year, two years, depending on, on where the organization, where the leader is, through profound shifts, enable them and enable their businesses to become future fit. I have not yet met, met a leader who doesn't actually want to be future fit. Completely, because there's so much change in the world and there's also a lot of uncertainty and there's macroeconomic and geopolitical and other just supply chains, other things that are changing all the time. So actually resilience is a massive I would, a massive area, I would think, for companies and the, their ability to be agile and move in those directions and when you know something something changes. And that is something, resilience is absolutely inherent in nature really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if there's one thing that, that life is showing us is how to deal with emergence and creating organizations and leaders that are able to adapt to change, to constantly adapt and evolve. Life is ever changing and it's full of tensions. So getting comfortable with those tensions, getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, working with those tensions, allowing those tensions to become crucibles for creativity, for innovation, for new ways of working, that then becomes the fuel that allows us to unlock our brilliance within our organizations and allows us to work with other organizations um, across our business ecosystem in far more effective ways. So it's that that makes him resilience. And I would say it's probably even more than resilience. It's a, the capacity to thrive, to continuously yeah. evolve. Yeah, in business terms, it's, it's turning threats into opportunities because you can see and act on them um, in advance of others in a way. And so it's a shift from a kind of fear-based you know, narrow down perspective into an opening up. It's just, it, essentially, it's just making leaders more conscious and more able to run their organizations. But essentially, it's also about ensuring that their organizations become life-affirming. Um, so it's not just about becoming more profitable. Um, profit is an important part of this. You need to be able to survive. Um, it's, it's about actually working with life. And that is a power that when you work with and unlock, 
is there to help you and helps serve um, us as manifestors in a way of creating organizations that do good in the world rather than this bizarre idea that business should be about destroying life, which doesn't have to be. Yeah, I mean, it's just evolved that way, I think, from the mindset from post-war yield obsession, basically. And, and um, we've become, uh, I mean, some of your work quotes um, Dr. Ian McGilchrist's amazing um, amazing book, uh, his, um, The Master and His Misery, is it? Uh, um, yeah. You know, left brain, left brain, and right brain thinking, and and certainly, I feel like the world is more polarized than ever. You're either left or you're right, or or you know, the, I think perhaps the the evolution of of more technical platforms, social media, etc. It, it's just um, an echo chamber, or, or feeding you things that are deliberately kind of polarizing and and it seems it seems strange to me that that something that that you know connects us all on a daily basis also slightly creates a barrier between us and and the living world in a way because we we live under strip lights or 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 you know we're not really um, the only time people are getting real connection sometimes with nature is is when they book a, a two week holiday to try and detox from from what should be what is seen as the pinnacle of a career for example and you know why why is it that people with with very little income um on the streets can be by all means you know pretty much happy or seem very happy outwardly and and people with a lot of resources can often be the most depressed and unwell that that certainly resonates with some of the observations in 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 your books and and um what can people do listening to this that want to start to think more along these lines aside from reading you know the, your work and connecting with you what what are simple things that people can start to do to try and change this consciousness inside themselves well uh, uh, in the last chapter of living by nature i give some some powerful tools some of this is about just the quality of presence the quality of consciousness that we bring to each moment so you just talked about this we live in an age of distraction and yet it's up to us to get distracted by that or not. We do have choices to make. So we've got to watch our own habits. So when this group of leaders came here yesterday, for instance, the first thing I did when they all arrived, much to their um, amazement for some of them, is to say, right, we're going to leave your, your mobile phones either in the safe here or in the car before we go into it. And they were like, oh my God, I'm a <laughs> Terror. Um, at the end of the day, all of them said, wow, thank God we left our mobile phones away. They just would because after lunch, when people are just getting into the depths of things, you know, one or two of them said, oh, this would usually be when I'd be able to be looking at my mobile phone. And we just get distracted. Just back to that two-week holiday that someone books, as you say, to celebrate the next stage in their life. They take their phone with them and then constantly have the urge to check in with what's happening. So we can make our own discipline, and that's part of coaching leaders. So stillness is a very important thing. You know, whether that's a morning meditation, whether that's just going for a jog, whether that's journaling um, at the end of the evening to reflect on things, really connecting inward, an inner journey is very important. And, and noticing our distractions, noticing our habits, it's, it's titillating to go to the Twitter feed or mm -hmm. to check our emails or to pick up the phone. But what happens if we don't? We get back to our own selves. What is this journey all about, if not to become more of who we truly are? So that's a very simple one, but not necessarily easy. And that goes hand in hand with another tip, which is surrender. Surrendering to life, letting go. So much of the challenge that we have is that we get caught up in wanting to control, wanting to manage, um, being fearful about, oh, what is So I better micromanage, or I better know what's happening, or... But actually, if you allow things to let go of it, that doesn't mean to say you become uh, whimsical or you um, don't 
project manager or so forth. You know, you need to keep mm. a handle on things. But at the same token, there's a letting go, there's an easing, um, not being so tightly held on things, not being so stressed. And that letting go allows things to flow more. And that's important as well. And then I would say you can start noticing the synchronicity, noticing the patterns and the signs of what's happening around you and trusting your own gut and your own intuition, which again goes hand in hand with actually finding stillness. Because until you deepen your connection with your own self, it's sometimes difficult to listen to your intuition or your gut. So we have all the natural capacities there. Um, those are very simple little tips. Um, but I, and, and often what I'm doing initially on a coaching journey with a leader is just inviting them to start getting used to and reconnecting with their own supernature, what I call their own supernature, their own intelligences that they have within inside themselves so they can start trusting them themselves and trusting life. And when, and when they get back into the organization, I mean, how does this practically manifest itself in terms of decisions or, or, or things that, 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 that you've seen change inside organizations that are kind of open to more regenerative thinking and more regenerative approaches? What does it become? So there's a whole shift really around the organization in becoming future fit. I mean, I talk about needing by nature in quite detail. I talk about the inner nature of the leader and the outer nature of the leader, the way in which they show up and relate to others and what effect that has on the organization. And then I talk about the organization, the inner nature of the organization, being the culture, um, the ways in which we make decisions, the ways in which we engage in feedback and share and learn and work together through distributed decision-making and more self-organizing ways of operating, and the outer nature of the organization, the value propositions, the ways in which we're showing up and engaging with stakeholders, and the shift that we're seeing at the moment through uh, the Internet of Things, through a more collaborative approach to business and, and sustainability and so forth, just a shift from products to services to community participation. And what mm -hmm. does that mean for the organization? And how can those value propositions shift? So, there's, I mean, there's a whole chapter in there on a, a detailed case study about an organization, um, a consumer goods organization, moving into the future. But there's also throughout it sort of insights on what does that mean for the culture in terms of becoming more developmental, more learning orientated, more reflective, um, more tuning in to how we unlock the brilliance of our people, uh, more emergent, so more self-managing, mm -hmm. uh, more agile, and more evolutionary. So we listen to the evolutionary purpose of the organization, and we allow ourselves to become more purposeful every day. And that's subtly different um, from purpose as a kind of mission statement or a values charter or a PowerPoint pack or, or <laughs> this is something that is lived in the day to day that we bring out of ourselves and we work with the system. And there's tools that I provide in there about working with living systems approaches like systemic enablers so that we listen to the system and adapt and evolve. So we bake in that future fitness every day. Now more than ever, companies need to be fit for, for, for the future and it's a changing future. And I think, you know, you're touching there on evolutionism and stuff. I, I think one of the nice things that comes up in one of the books certainly is that, um, you know, Darwin is somewhat not misquoted, but it's kind of misunderstood the whole survival of the fittest. Because I think that's also something in business, dog eat dog, we're a fitter company, we're going to win over that company. And, and that wasn't actually what Darwin was saying by fittest. No, and that's, again, um, there's lots of corruptions that happen in that mechanistic materialism. And that left-brain hemisphere approach that you talk about, Ian McGilchrist's work is, is fascinating, uh, is that we tune things out. We tune out the living world and we get caught on the bits and bytes. And um, so we drill down. So 
the whole of life then becomes this sort of um, separate species struggling for survival in a dog-eat-dog world. And that's not how life is taught. Um, yes, we have corrupted some of Darwin's work. It's now called neo-Darwinism, which is a corruption, you know, the selfish gene. Um, actually, fitting, fittest was about fitting in, adapting, forever fitting in and adapting to your niche. And that's upgrading your relationships, continuously evolving. Um, as Lynn Margulis, the award-winning biologist, says, life did not take over the world through combat, but through networking. And, and businesses know this. Businesses, astute business leaders know that they need to form adaptive partnerships. And people working with the Internet of Things and, and selling over e-commerce know that you need to have an array of ambassadors and social media partners. And so you have to have flexible relationships now to work in that fast-evolving market. And that requires trust. It requires a connection. It requires shared values, all of which requires authenticity, um, which comes back again to the consciousness of our own leaders. And do you think that this change is happening in our lifetime? Is it, uh, I mean, there's obviously tremendous focus or thoughts around 2030. We're, we're a long way short on SDGs. And, and it's been, I think, the Stockholm Resilience um, Centre are predicting, you know, we're going to hit 11 and a half out of the, the 17 that we were supposed to hit in 2030 by 2050. So are we going to see an acceleration? Are we getting the 6 to 10% that are needed to create this kind of transformation and to kind of allow the the caterpillars to start to uh, dissolve um where are we on this and 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 what's your prediction for the future yeah well i've been very vocal about this work for over a decade now and when i first started talking about this stuff and writing articles in sustainable business networks and and, and writing my first book uh, back in 2012 um, the nature of business Many people in the more um, mainstream sustainable business movement, were, 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 I could imagine, um, would say that, you know, they felt my work was too sort of on the edge. And now, of course, 10 years later, I'm not getting that at all. I'm getting, oh, wow, this is kind of what we need. So even in those 10 years, which in the grand scheme of things is very minor, I've noticed a shift. And in terms of my work and, and um, clients contacting me, significant changes. So yes, all I can, no one can predict the future. Um, I, I can say that for sure I am I'm seeing um, an upswell. Um, is that upswell fast enough? I think we, we run the risk again of doing what we always do, which is bringing a mechanistic materialism to even trying to predict the future. Um, and so, you know, uh, yes, there's a need for metrics and graphs uh, and, and, and goals, all very important. And yes, there certainly is a need for urgency. What's more important, is the quality that we bring to that urgency. Because if we come in with a rushed, fearful, you know, attacking, um, angry mindset, then actually, um, that's not the evolution that we want to create. Things are happening. Things are unfolding. Things work in complex systems in very different ways um, than we're used to. And I have an innate knowing, I wouldn't even say it's a belief, but a knowing um, that we will evolve um, I don't know what that looks like. And what I'm gesturing towards is that it needs to include a deep connection with life on Earth. Quite an obvious statement. Quite <laughs> yeah, it still seems to be far from lots of the discussions on the table today. Well, that's the beauty of a lot of um, certainly regenerative leadership and why it resonated with me. The book uh, was just because so much of it was really 
completely blindingly obvious in a, it, uh, but beautifully uh, simply explained because I think as humans we all feel connection with each other um, we all love nature in one way or another we've you know we've got cats and dogs and 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 um, you know domesticated even animals and things and uh, we've just kind of lost the way a, a, a little bit uh, around all these systems and things that we're trapped inside and what's beautiful right now you know I think the quote that you met I don't know if you mentioned it uh, the Gandhi quote that, that covers some of your work but you know how how you make the change and then then um, though the kind of world presents itself to you is something I've noticed just transitioning into impact investing um, you know many people have limiting beliefs you know how can you invest for impact it's about risk and return but actually if you change the lens if you look uh, out there there are incredible people and their incredible founders and their incredible companies you know building not only profitable high growth exciting companies they're doing it in a way which is helping the environment to flourish helping us have abundance rather than creating scarcity and that to me is the biggest advert for your work of all so Giles it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for joining us on the show and I would uh, advise everyone to you know follow your work or, or you know get involved in in some of the stuff you're doing certainly read your books because they're they're brilliant thank you thank you and thank you for being interested in the work and thank you for what you do Raphael you know you're an exciting edge of all of this and we are making the change happen so thank you very much